0: You're listening to the Minnesota Progressive Repartee, here in the liberal land of long beards, lattes, and ludovisk. And now here are your hosts, Brett Johnson and Eric Nelson. And welcome in to the 4 o'clock Minnesota Progressive Repartee for the final time on this Friday afternoon as this is the very last Minnesota Progressive Repartee at 4 o'clock as we're making a little bit of a schedule change for next week where I am going to be debuting a new show that will air weekdays at 2 o'clock beginning on Monday. And we do have a title for the show, Eric, and I want to give credit to one of our callers from earlier this week, David the Trucker, who suggested throw an FYI in the name, and I decided to run with that. So the new name, are you ready? FYI Politics with Brett Johnson shall be the new name of the show, with a shout-out to David the Trucker for helping to come out with this one. So Yeah, that, there we that go. was a good na- name. I know. I was struggling to come up with one, so... I'll talk more about this on Monday when FYI Politics with Brett Johnson debuts, but I had another name in the works that I still might throw out there occasionally in terms of uh how I refer to some of the segments and aspects of the show, but I'll have more details on that Monday because I think, Eric, you might get a kick out of this one, but we'll talk more about that on Monday coming up. But, yeah, David the Trucker, thanks so much for helping out and coming up with a new name for the show. If you're at the Blue State Ball, if you can haul the truck to Minnesota, coming up on February 23rd, I got to think of a prize I can give David the trucker. Maybe I'll buy him a drink or something, or I don't know. Give him a—I'll give him a bumper sticker. Even though, hint, those are free already. So we'll think of something in the meantime, David. If you can, you can make it for him the Brett Johnson of F Brett FYI Johnson, Politics. Yeah, Politics, because my signature by that point is going to be worth thousands and thousands of... I, I've i seen your signature, yeah. and saying that it's worth thousands of dollars is... Yeah, uh, I was going to say... Out of, it's out of... Uh, it's, I can't understand it. Yeah, I, no one can understand my signature. I, I used to be pretty good at writing my signature back when I was in like grade school. Now it's just, you can kind of make out the B, and then the rest of it's just a scribble. It looks more like an M to me. Does it look more like an Where M? Where I was okay. confused by who was signing off on things for like <laughs> a good month. Mm-hmm. It's a lost art form, I'll tell you, because I almost never handwrite anything anymore, just of the advent of computers and the ability to send emails and text messages. It's a lost art form, man. I used to be pretty good at handwriting. Now I'm absolutely atrocious at it. How's your handwriting in there? Oh, it's... I mean, if I have to write some notes for myself, Mm -hmm. it's fine. But my signature looks like a child did it. (laughs) You know what I also feel kind of bad about? This isn't political at all, but I got to throw this in. So uh, one of the neighbors I have in my homeowners association sent me this really nice Christmas card and Christmas letter. And, oh, man, hopefully people don't slam me for this. It was written all in cursive, and I couldn't read a word of what she wrote. Yeah. I know. It's funny when people have, like, a very uh, clean, nice-looking penmanship, but at the same time, it's completely Mm. unreadable. I was shocked when I was looking at that. I'm like, I can no longer read cursive handwriting. It wasn't, like, sloppy cursive either. I just – yeah. I could make out some of the words on there, but it almost looked like a foreign language to me. It looks like it's written in Arabic. Yeah, it kind of did. So I had to go talk to Barb, and, uh, yeah, we ended up talking a little bit. She got a kick out of the fact that I I couldn't read cursive whatsoever. So I am cursive illiterate. So there's that for you. So uh, there will be no handwriting on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Not that that would really work, being that it's a radio show. But Yeah, over the radio calligraphy lessons. (laughs) That would be one hell of a segment to throw on there. Calligraphy lessons on the radio. So, hey, what is going on with this radio show, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson? Well, it's going to be similar to the current 4 o'clock Minnesota progressive repartee that you hear now, but we will have some minor tweaks we're going to be making to the show, but It will still be largely in the same sense of how the current show works. we'll we'll be talking about a lot of the underreported national news stories that sometimes don't make it into the news cycle, but still that extra emphasis on state and local government. Because often when it comes to when people decide who to vote, they always look at the president. Oh, what does the president think about this? Who should I vote for for the presidency? And really, it's state and local government that has a far bigger impact on your life. So we'll continue putting an emphasis on that and following along what's happening in the state legislature. That'll be a focus on the show. And then I'm going to throw this in there as well on the new FYI politics with Brett Johnson. I don't think I'll quite do this every day, but we'll do it okay. Occasionally, we'll have like a civics segment where we're going to talk about how caucuses and primaries work. We're going to talk about gerrymandering and how districts are drawn. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, lots of other topics like how senators end up casting their votes. Just kind of some interesting stuff that seems like really basic stuff that you might know but probably don't. At least in my case, I generally don't. So it'll be kind of like our... uh, well, it fits the name FYI, doesn't it? So we'll add a little civic segment in there as well. But uh, also happy with this move to 2 o'clock is that it's really going to open the doors to getting some new guests on the program because I didn't even think of this when I first started doing the 4 o'clock show and that, that it's hard to actually get guests to come in studio and actually chat on the phone because if they're local, well, they're probably in rush hour or just finishing up from work and... I don't know about you, Eric. If I'm just finishing up with work, I generally don't want to be conducting an interview with somebody and talking on the phone. Or if I get national guests that are out there on the East Coast, they have already left work and are probably in their commute heading on home. So Eating dinner or something exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah. And you probably don't want to be conducting an interview in that sense either. So, yeah, moving this show to 2 o'clock should allow us to have some different guests on the show, and I think this is going to be the best feature. I should be live just about every single day of the week, so I'm really looking forward to that because I... Always look forward to chatting with you on the other side of the radio every once in a while. So most of the shows, if not all of them, will be live with this new move that's going to be at 2 o'clock. All right, we're going to head to break in just a few minutes. But as you heard at the top of the show, forgot to address this, but you probably heard the old Minnesota progressive repartee intro. That was always a fun one we used to do on the program, wasn't it, Eric? Remember when we used to do the old random thought of the day? We oh, yeah, that maybe lasted two days? Yeah, yeah, until we ran out of random thoughts of the day. But yeah, it was always fun to play that little theme song every once in a while. And that's the reason why we played it today, being that it is the final Minnesota Progressive Repartee. And throughout the program, I'll. Throw in some of the old bumper music we used to use when Doug Paget was on the airwaves, including some Springsteen songs. So look forward to that coming up on the show. And then also I uh, want to give a big shout out to Hunter Haas as well, who was certainly a big part of the Minnesota Progressive Repartee and hosting the program. All right, so what's on tap for the show today? Well, it's not all nostalgia. Coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to be speaking to Peter Callahan of MinPost as we're going to get a preview of what could be happening in the state legislature. Coming up next month as we're going to be talking about the bonding bill and then also why the DFL is putting this big emphasis on trying to legalize recreational cannabis. has something to do with possibly these third parties that have been popping up regarding legalizing marijuana. So we're going to chat with Peter Callahan of MinnPost on the other side of the break about that and more as you are listening to the final Minnesota Progressive Repartee with Brett Johnson. Again, my new show, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson, starts next week. It'll be weekdays at 2 o'clock while Democracy Now! moves to 4. <laughs> Welcome back to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're joined now by Peter Callahan, who covers state government for MinnPost, as we're going to be talking about what we could expect in the upcoming legislative session, including topics like cannabis legalization and also, well, the big one that will certainly be, be debated in the upcoming session, and that is the bonding bill. So, Peter, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Great to be here. Yeah, good to have you back. So let's talk about what obviously is the main focus of the upcoming session, and that is the bonding bill. So we have some differences between DFLs and DFLers and Republicans, where Governor Tim Walls is proposing a $2.6 billion bonding bill. Republicans want a little less, but overall the kind of feeling is Well, we have some good feelings on the surface where both parties obviously want a bonding bill, but really there is a significant difference in terms of what Walls wants to spend versus what the Republicans want to spend.
1: What else is new? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It it pretty much mirrors the the debate on all things having to do with spending money. Exactly. The Republicans want to undercut whatever number the DFL comes up with uh, so that they can, uh, you know, run on fiscal integrity and the uh, DFL is uh, trying to resolve issues and problems. And a lot of times that costs money.
0: So what exactly is in Governor Walz's $2.6 billion bonding bill? If you can kind of summarize and go through some of the key projects he has in there.
1: Well, the bonding, by tradition in this state, the legislature and the governor's, alternate between operating budget years that would be the even or the odd number year and what they call the bonding session for the bonding bill and that's where you go out to essentially wall street and sell a bunch of state bonds and use the money to build stuff and they even though that's been the tradition they've been doing bonding bills every year for the last probably 20 years they just tend to be a a larger in this even number bonding session and this is for everything. This is for fixing a building at the University of Minnesota. It's to give money to Met transit, Metro Transit to help them build the D-line uh, bus rapid transit line uh, from north of Minneapolis to south of Minneapolis and through town. Uh, they want a new state emergency operations center uh, in St. Paul. This is when there's a natural disaster where they all go and operate the disaster. Uh, to the Institute of Child Development Building at the University of Minnesota. This year, uh, Governor Walls has a lot more local projects for, uh, cities, counties, townships, uh, than Governor Dayton had done in his last several. And this is the state just helps local government build things. Uh, Minneapolis has a hundred year old storm water tunnel under the city that is, they love to take people down there and show them how crumbling it is and with climate events becoming more severe, they're worried that it's going to blow at some point and they need to replace it. So he has money for for, for Minneapolis to do that.
0: So bonding bills also do require that supermajority in both houses of 60%. And at least just talking about the politics behind this as Walls is presenting what's in his bonding bill, he's going through, as you were kind of alluding to and talking about specific projects that impact just about every district in the state, which for him is probably a smart strategy in terms of trying to get More DFLers elected to the Senate and, well, the House as well in 2020, being that he can say, look, we are proposing all of these projects that are going to impact the entire state. And your Republican representative or your Republican senator said no. So that's certainly at least a strategy on the DFL part, correct?
1: Sure, but it can't be a a winning strategy because you have to get Republican votes in both the House and the Senate, at least on the bonds, which are the bulk of the bonds that require this constitutional 60% majority. So you've got to get Republican votes. It's one of the few times, I take it back, you have to get DFL votes in the Senate because the Republicans have the majority. It's one of the few times that the minority caucuses of the House and Senate have some power because it's the one time they're needed. And frankly, there is a bit of pork barreling at the end of the day when I need that one vote and that legislator, that minority legislator says, gee, my local project isn't in there and then suddenly that project appears in the budget so there is some uh you know good old-fashioned horse trading at the end to get enough votes to pass this and republicans like to cut ribbons as well
0: yeah uh, both parties certainly are very, very much into that so What you also wrote in your recent piece on the bonding bill is basically this idea of how much money we can put into a bonding bill and whether we should have limits on bonding bills. And technically, right now, there really is no constitutional limit on the amount of money that the state of Minnesota can borrow. But we do have some guidelines that were developed by the Office of uh, Management and Budget during the early to mid-2000s, during the Pawlenty years. So can you explain kind of what those guidelines are and what's in them?
1: I think what those guidelines do is try to uh, have some idea as to how big the state economy is, how big the state budget is and determine our debt service. And those are those annual payments like your mortgage for principal and interest shouldn't be larger than a certain chunk of say state revenues or a certain percentage of the state economy. So they have guidelines that, keep the state within those boundaries but as you said those are uh, management and budget guidelines they're not in statute and they could be changed that said uh, minnesota is well within these guidelines in fact they would allow a new uh, bonding bill this next session of up to 3.5 billion dollars uh, which would be far and away the largest bonding bill the state has ever passed so walls is able to say hey my 2. Uh, two billion in, in bonds that require 60% maturity and another 600 million in other bonds. That's reasonable. I'm way under this, this, uh, cap that is established by these guidelines. Republicans are back to sort of a, listen, we usually do a, a billion dollars. We should do a billion dollars this year. Anything more than that is, is extravagant. So that's where they are in shaping it. But as we've already said, everybody wants to have some type of bonding bill, not just for the politics of it. These are for state institutions. These are for prisons, you know, new roof on a prison. They understand that there's certain investments that the state has to make every couple of years just to keep uh, keep things running.
0: And we have had some proposals in terms of reforming how much we can spend on the bonding bill, and one of those is from Representative Bob Vogel, who is a Republican from Elko New Market, where he wants to create a change that would prohibit the state's interest and in principal payments from exceeding what I believe is a little over 3% of the state's general fund tax collection. So what are some of the arguments he's been making when you've been talking to him in terms of going to this reform where we would restrict how much we could borrow and put that in the Constitution?
1: Yeah, he would. it would be a statutory change. It That's would be statutory, a constitutional sure. change. Mm-hmm. But, again, it would be the first that the state had that is a, is a statutory change. And his idea is, listen, the state economy is one thing, but what we really should be looking at is what our income is. Uh, and they like to talk about the, the family income, and you don't want your debt payments or your mortgage payments to be more than X percent of what your monthly uh, income is. So that's what his bill would do. It would do a, it would compare debt service to how much revenue the state is collecting at any given time. And I came from the state of Washington and that's the constitutional limits in Washington. They're based on, on revenue collections, uh, not what Minnesota looks at more as, a sort of total state personal income of, of the people within the state. They're both, you know, they both kind of get at the same place. And Vogel acknowledges that his bill, the state would be still well under the cap of his bill. Uh, what would happen, though, is if you had an emergency at some future date, you would have to amend that bill if you needed to sell more bonds than that bill would require. Of course, that's a 50 percent vote. So if you have enough votes to pass uh, the bonding, you should have enough votes to amend any statute that might be passed.
0: Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, you could do that through statute, as you're saying. So you were talking about this, too, how the home state you came from is Washington, where they have kind of a similar system that uh, Bob Vogel is proposing. So how does our overall system in Minnesota compare to other states around the country in terms of how much we borrow? Are there statutory limits? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, Minnesota is about in the middle of the pack as far as how much debt it takes on. Uh, it gets very good marks from, uh, Pew Center, uh, which looks at government finances, uh, the, um, Minnesota Center for Fiscal Excellence, which is you know, sort of a business-leaning, uh, think tank that looks at, at state fiscal responsibility. It puts Minnesota right about in the middle of the pack, uh, about $761 of debt per household in the state. Uh, so Minnesota is not, uh, a big spender in this regard. And they have very, very high credit ratings for their bonds from the from the bond rating houses in New York. So fiscally, the state is, is, is in a fairly good position. And Myron Fran, the budget director for the state, points out that those same bond rating agencies do not want you to be putting off infrastructure spending. They look at whether or not you're keeping up with your buildings and roads and other things to make sure that you're not facing some situation out in the future where you're gonna have some, some disaster that's gonna require a lot of borrowing suddenly. So they, they want you to be borrowing certain amounts of money as you go through uh, the years to make sure you're not gonna put yourself in a bad place in the future.
0: And that was part one of my conversation with Peter Callahan of MinPost, as we've been talking about what could happen during the next legislative session. Coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to switch gears and talk about the DFL's push to legalize cannabis and the prospects for maybe even having a compromise bill in the Republican-controlled Senate. That's on the way next. On AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, on the 4 o'clock show for the final time ever. As a reminder, my new show, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson, debuts on Monday, and that will air weekdays from 2 until 3 p.m. Let's get back to my conversation now with Peter Callahan of Minpost as we're previewing what could happen when the state legislature convenes next month. And what we're going to talk about now is why the DFL is making a big push for legalization of recreational cannabis and also the prospects for maybe even having a compromise bill regarding cannabis in the Republican-controlled Senate. We're speaking with Peter Callahan. He covers state government for MinnPost. And, Peter, I want to move on to a couple of other topics that are possibly going to be debated during the upcoming session. And one of those is something you wrote about a few days ago that has to do with cannabis legalization, because the DFL House and some of their members have recently been holding some listening tours around the state regarding cannabis legalization. So... Does this still seem to be a priority heading into the 2020 session for the DFL in terms of trying to make recreational cannabis legalized?
1: Yeah, I think the general sense among the DFL leadership, at least, is that this is something that will happen in Minnesota sooner or later. Uh, Minnesota is not a, does not allow initiatives from the people, and many of the states that legalized marijuana initially did so by initiative. So you're now starting to see states that are doing it by legislation, uh, Illinois is sort of the big one recently that they, the house and Senate and governor agreed to legalize uh, marijuana for recreational use. So that's where the house DFL majority led by uh, majority leader, Brian Winkler, that's where they're going. And he wanted to have this tour. He understands that there's opposition. He understands that there are concerns. He wants to sort of address all of these things, but I think even though he's now held off a commitment to Bringing a bill to a vote, I think they will bring a bill to a vote sometime in the 2020 session, where it will then go over to the Senate, where we expect it will die. The leadership says there will not be a legal uh, recreational marijuana bill passed. So you wonder why they would go to all that trouble. I think that's you know a lot of it has to do with the 2020 election.
0: Yeah, and I think a big part of that is because we probably have two legalized marijuana parties that are out there right now, and. What do you think about some of the other reasons? Could it be that they're just trying to build voter turnout and hoping that it could have maybe the same effect that the marriage amendment had on Democrats in 2012? Kind of hearing any strategic reasons as to why the DFL might be trying to focus on marijuana legalization, at least for recreational uses?
1: Yeah, I think it might get down to the district-by-district level. Uh, The marijuana parties in two sort of test of strength votes in the last uh, statewide election got over 5% of the vote in the attorney general's race, and they got over 5% of the vote in the auditor race. And those are the thresholds that made them major parties and gave them major party status. So they automatically appear on the primary ballot. They don't have to do nominating conventions anymore or go get signatures. Their candidates can just go file. In fact, anybody in the state can go file and say they are representing those parties. So if they go on to a general election ballot, say in a swing suburban district, and there's a Republican and a Democrat and one or two of the Marijuana Party candidates, all you have to do is take a 1% or 2% of the vote from the DFL candidate, and that could make the difference between winning and losing a suburban swing district. So I think what the DFL is, is thinking is, These are pretty pragmatic people. They just want marijuana legalized. They don't feel the need to have some symbolic vote for a candidate. And if the fastest way to legalization is to elect that DFL candidate in the district, they're hoping that's where their vote will go, not be essentially thrown away on a marijuana candidate. What Winkler is worried about is 1% and 2% in swing Mm -hmm. districts. And they want those candidates, I mean those voters, and there's not many of them, but there are enough of them who this is their issue, he wants them voting for DFL candidates in those races.
0: Kind to of put you on the spot with this one right here, but do we actually have some of these marijuana legalization parties that are actually running candidates in local legislative races? Because obviously we saw them at the state level when we had candidates for governor and attorney general and senate and other offices, but do we even have some that, are, that you know of that are running at that local level?
1: In the 68 special election uh, that was held this week, uh, there was one uh, marijuana party candidate, and because... He was the only marijuana candidate uh, in his primary. He will be on the general election ballot Mm -hmm. against a DFL candidate. But that's 68. That's Northeast Minneapolis. There was no Republican running in that race.
0: Yeah, and that's the district that obviously they would have no chance in for Republicans. But yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: exactly. So um, and then the the interesting thing about going to major party status is the parties no longer have any control over who gets to run under their banner like they did when they would have nominating conventions and gather signatures. So anyone can go file for office as one of those two parties. And it's kind of a direct path to the general election. Mm -hmm. So in a couple of years we have statewide elections. I'm going to throw a silly name out. Jesse Ventura could, could file as a, one of the marijuana parties. And is well enough known that he could get to the general election ballot again using that pathway. So um, I expect that there will be a fair number of legalization candidates on uh, running for the legislature this year just because it, they are active and two, because it's so easy.
0: And as we were kind of talking about, yeah, DFLers are successful in getting cannabis legalized, obviously that kind of takes that issue and also some of those third parties off the table, but obviously in this session they would need support from Republicans in the Senate, and Paul Gazelka has come out firmly against having any sort of recreational cannabis legalized, but... Is there any room that we've been hearing for Republicans for maybe a compromise on reforms to maybe medical cannabis or other issues, maybe criminal justice reform? What ideas have we been hearing from the Republicans in terms of making any reform to cannabis?
1: Yeah, I mean, those organizations, you know, Republicans for Marijuana Legalization, I mean, there there are groups like that, and I had talked to... um, a person who's going to be in his last term because he said he's not running for re-election, which is Republican Senator Scott Jensen. And he thinks politically Republicans would be better off being open-minded about this issue, not necessarily be full-on legalization votes, but at least to be people who will listen. He has a couple of pretty small things that he would like to run, which is to... Uh, help expunge the record of people who are convicted of, of minor marijuana offenses. Um, now you requ- you have to go and petition to have records expunged. This would do it automatically after a year if you did not have uh, additional offenses. And he thinks that um, there should also be some changes in the way the the medical marijuana system runs. Primarily, Minnesota does not allow leaf or flower. You can't smoke marijuana in the state. That's the Mm -hmm. cheapest way to produce this uh, product. And the fact that you can't sell the product in that form is one of the things that makes it so expensive for people who use it for medical purposes. And because the expense is so high and because the reimbursements are not available for a lot of people, there is a black market even in the medical marijuana side because of the cost. So there's some, you know, kind of around the edges that you could get some Republican votes for. Gazelka has talked about sort of the criminal justice side and, and record expungement and things like that for minor marijuana possession. Uh, Maybe that gets passed, but then it would require uh, Democrats to be voting for that as well. And they may be holding out for full
0: legalization. We've been speaking with Peter Callahan, who covers state government for MinnPost, chatting about, well, the prospects for cannabis legalization and also the bonding bill, which will certainly be debated in the upcoming session. And you can follow along with what Peter writes over at minpost.com So, Peter, thanks so much for joining us on the program today and kind of giving us a little preview on what we could expect in the upcoming session. Okay, great to be here. And as always, go to MinPost.com to find the latest from Peter Callahan and the other very talented journalists they have over at MinPost. we got one final segment left on the 4 o'clock show, and we'll get to that next. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, with you on the 4 o'clock show on your Friday afternoon, and this is the final segment ever that I will be doing of the 4 o'clock show, since my new show, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson, will start next week, that will be weekdays from 2 until 3 p.m., and then, don't forget, Democracy Now still will be on the airwaves, it will just be weekdays at 4. So the new show next week, again, weekdays at 2 o'clock, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson won't be too much different from the current show you're hearing now at 4 o'clock, but there will be some minor tweaks. On this final segment, I would like to go to our voicemail box. haven't done that very often over the past few weeks and months, but we, of course, do have a voicemail at AM 950 that you can call 952-946-6205. Same as our call-in number, but if you are calling outside of when we normally have our live shows, you can always leave us a voicemail, and occasionally we will play those back on the program. And one of the voicemails we got this morning is from a listener in Golden Valley named Peter who wanted to talk about the impeachment trial and some of the Senate Republicans. Let's go ahead and listen to that voicemail now from Peter.
2: Hi there, it's Peter. A question. McConnell and Lindsey Graham and all these bozos stood up and said they weren't going to be impartial judges before the trial even began. Now, if you or I were called up for jury duty and you told the, the, the person at the desk if he, after he asked you, were you going to be impartial in this trial or whatever, and you said, oh, no, i got my mind made up before he even go in there, he's definitely guilty, uh, you wouldn't get a seat on the jury, would you? So what's the difference? Um, what's the difference? Why isn't McConnell dragged out of there in handcuffs or why isn't he just denied access to the Senate even though he's leading it? And and, and Lindsey Graham and all their bozo mates. Um, I'd I want to know the answer to that. And if they, if they say, oh, it's different in the Supreme Court, well, shouldn't the Supreme Court be leaders of, by example? Shouldn't they be leading by example in all this? I can't see why those guys should be on on it on a jury if they said right up front no i'm not going to be partial i think that's an injustice thank you
0: thanks for the voicemail peter and always do love the accent as well but he does bring up a good point because before the senate trial even began moscow mitch did fully admit that he was going to be coordinating closely with the trump administration which imagine if you were doing that as a jury you were saying i am going to be working closely with the defense team. Obviously, you would be thrown out of jury duty right away. Now, of course, a lot of senators on the Republican side and even the Democratic side have largely made up their mind already on how they're going to vote. But let's take a look at this analogy that Peter brought up on the voicemail, comparing this to jury duty. Now, if you're on jury duty and you get some information about the case, you sometimes might actually have some preconceived notions or maybe leanings in terms of how you are going to end up voting on the case. But what's important is that you generally don't show that when you're on the jury. You at least maintain the appearance that you are going to be impartial, and you probably will listen to both sides of the argument, and oftentimes you even will, even if you actually do have leanings towards either the prosecution or the defense. Now, what we're seeing, of course, in the Senate trial is that Republicans have been absolutely blatant about how they are going to vote ultimately on either acquitting or convicting President Trump. They're not even giving the appearance as to whether they are going to even listen to the facts and try to make a judgment in their own head. They already have that made up, which is very problematic. They're not even giving the appearance that they're impartial jurors. In fact, if you've been watching for the past few days, you've probably noticed that a number of Republican senators have been taking advantage of this kind of loophole where essentially you can go to the bathroom and that'll be your one excuse to leave the Senate chamber, except for the fact that a number of the Republican senators and a few Democratic senators too have been leaving for a good like 20 to 30 minutes or sometimes even longer than that. So that rule has certainly been abused. So, yes, this has been an ugly trial from at least what we've seen from the jurors who are the senators who have been leaving the chamber for long periods of time and then have not even given the appearance that they are actually going to be impartial jurors. And Peter on that voicemail hits the nail on the head that if you don't even have impartial jurors who are deciding whether the president should be convicted and removed from office or acquitted, yeah, that's not a good sign whatsoever. Also, one final note about the impeachment trial, and saw this brought up on another program here on AM950, David Packman. And he was highlighting how Fox News has actually been covering the impeachment trial. And they're doing something which is, as he said, kind of an evil genius sort of thing, where technically they actually are showing the Senate impeachment trial on their television screens. But what they've been doing is that they're muting the audio while they have their commentators like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and others telling you what you should be thinking about the Senate impeachment trial. They're not even playing the raw audio whatsoever. And where this is problematic is that if you have someone who is a Fox News viewer, yeah, they can actually see the lips of Adam Schiff moving, but they can't actually hear any of the audio. Fox News is just showing the video, but no audio... So imagine what can happen a few weeks and a few months from now after Trump is inevitably acquitted. Well, what you'll probably hear from Fox News viewers and people who lean Republican, they'll say, well, yeah, I actually did watch the Senate impeachment trial and I didn't hear anything that said that President Trump should be convicted and removed from office. And technically, they are right. They did see the impeachment trial, but they didn't actually hear anything because Fox News is muting the audio of the trial. So, yeah, just imagine when you're talking with maybe some of your Republican friends down the line or maybe some relatives that watch Fox News, they'll technically say, yeah, I did watch the trial. They'll kind of subtly remember that in their head, but they weren't actually hearing anything since, for whatever reason, Fox News made the decision to mute the audio of the proceedings. So, kind of an evil genius way to spread propaganda where you can... Show the video of the impeachment trial, but then have audio dubbed over it of Fox News commentators like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. Also, what's been kind of funny too with the impeachment trial on Fox News is that oftentimes they're cutting away and showing commercials for My Pillow of our buddy Mike Lindell here in Minnesota. So, gotta get a kick out of that too. All right, a couple more notes before we wrap up the show today. First, a reminder that on Wednesday, January 29th, that is just a few days away, you can catch the Impeachment and Politics Forum that I'll be hosting along with Professor David Schultz over at Hamlin University. Anderson Room 305, the doors will open at 6, and the event begins at 7. We'll have a Q&A opportunity as well. And most importantly, that event is free to attend. We have more details over at am950radio.com, but hopefully I will see you next Wednesday over at Hamlin University, as we'll be doing that talk with Professor David Schultz on impeachment and kind of politics in general. That is Wednesday at Hamlin University, doors at 6. Event begins at 7 and no cost to attend. So we're kind of winding things down on the final segment that I will ever be doing here on the 4 o'clock show. And I encourage you to check out my new show, which debuts on Monday, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. And that will air weekdays from 2 until 3 o'clock. And don't forget, we're not canceling Democracy Now. You'll still be able to catch that as that will be weekdays at 4 o'clock beginning next week. Thanks for tuning in to both the Minnesota Progressive Repartee and the 4 O'Clock Show. I want to give a big thanks out to some of the other folks who helped host the show over the past few months and years, Doug Paget and Hunter Haas, for definitely making the Minnesota Progressive Repartee and the 4 O'Clock Show a success. Also a thanks to Eric Nelson, who's been a big help producing the show. So hopefully you'll be able to tune in to my brand new program starting next week on Monday, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson, that you will hear weekdays at 2 p.m. So for one final time, let's go ahead and play the closing theme for both the Minnesota Progressive Repartee and the 4 o'clock show. It's the Cold War Kids with Locker Room Talk.